0: Hebrews 11. We're still in Hebrews 11, but we're now into a new section of Hebrews 11. We're going to start to talk about uh, Abraham. He has more. There is more to say about Abraham in Hebrews 11 than there is any other person. And uh, so there's going to be several weeks that we will look at Abraham and some of the things that we learn from his life that teach us about Jesus. We'll begin this morning by reading actually a longer portion. We're only going to look at Hebrews 11 verse 8, but we're going to read Hebrews 11, 1 to 19 to get the full context of the story of Abraham. So let's begin in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 19. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. through Isaac shall be your offspring be named your, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was e- able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord <clears throat> this past week, Terry and I participated in a block party with our neighbors. Those don't happen that much anymore. Um, We have kind of an unusual block here in the city of Cedar Rapids. Um, They, for years, that our street hosted block parties every summer. And everybody would come together and just spend time together and kind of catch up. Um, More recently, people have been moving out of the block moving out of the neighborhood, because everybody's kids have grown up and moved on, and their houses are more than they need for where they are. But for years, they did this, and we'd watch each other's kids grow and every year get together and, and spend time together. Uh, in 2019, one of the newer uh, residents of the block, she's been there a lot longer than we have, but relative to the original people there. Um, she decided to resurrect that. a lot of people were saying that they missed it. The kids had grown gone on and they 'd stopped doing it and she decided to resurrect it so two thousand and nineteen she re- she restarted the block parties. We went to that one two thousand and twenty no block party i't i don 't know why, but for some reason we didn 't have a block party in two thousand and twenty i 'm just going to forget two thousand and twenty and just talk about it that way i don 't know what happened that year um, no, a lot of good things happened, and uh, God used difficult circumstances to grow me, and I'm thankful for that, but uh, we we just this last week had this latest iteration of the block party. So everybody came together at a couple people's front yards, and uh, we talked. And I was thinking about it afterwards, and I was thinking about Abraham kind of connecting this I thought, you know, in our culture, there are certain pleasantries that we exchange when we meet someone for the first time. <clears throat> We've had several new families move in over the last year, and we just uh, were on the verge of losing three families. That two of them were original families to the to the street. Um, but there's, but when we when we meet somebody or we see somebody we know, there's there's these, or we don't know well, there's these pleasantries we exchange. We exchange names, right? I'm John, you're, and we do that even though we're wearing name tags. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why, why we do that? When you get it right there, it says John, and actually our house number, John, and you still have to say, hi, I'm John. I don't know if it's to validate that you're not pretending to be somebody else, but everybody's got their name tags, and we, we do that little routine. We ask each other how long we've lived in our current location and if that location is our birthplace, we get there eventually. So are you from Cedar Rapids? On the street, obviously, we know that the other people are from the street, but we also had dinner unexpectedly with a couple last night that we didn't know at all. We went to something and we ended up at the same tables and we didn't know them and I hate that, but it worked out okay. But it was, you know, I'm John, this is Terry. They gave their names. Are you from Cedar Rapids? No, no, we moved here from uh, Chicago, but uh, the lady, the wife, is originally from, from, they're both originally from Iowa. They just moved back to Cedar Rapids. So you, you do that little routine. Where, how long have you lived here? Uh, for us, well, seven years, but four years in our current location. But we've been seven years in Cedar Rapids. And if you're, not, if if Iowa isn't your birthplace, well, where are you originally from? Where did you come from? That's your next question. Then the next question is, where do you work? Especially with guys. And I've learned that it's you. You ask both now, but there was a time when it was just the guys would say, where do you work? And you talk about your jobs. Now it's, do you work as well? And then you talk about that job. Do you have any children? Well, how old are they? Where do they live? What do they do? These are all the things that we do when we first meet someone. If you're a pastor and you're meeting another pastor, there's a whole other culture that exists in the pastor's world. Um, But if you're a pastor and you're meeting another pastor for the first time, One of the questions that's going to come up at some point is what school did you go to? Where did you graduate from? What degrees do you have? And so, where did you get your undergrad? Okay, and where did you go for your master's? At least two things are happening in these moments. When we meet somebody, at least two things are happening. First, And most obviously, information is being gathered. We're running through that routine, partly because that's what our culture demands, and we're trying to think of all the questions you're supposed to ask, if you're like me, how do you, how do, you do that? But as ask, in asking those questions, you're actually causing the other pe- person, hopefully, to feel more comfortable. Now, if you're asking the question, and then you go, hmm, hmm, you're from Where? hmm, you know, that's not making them feel more comfortable. They're wondering what's going on. But we're gathering information, but that hmm is what you're doing inside. Even if you're not showing it on the outside, you're doing that inside. So what we're doing secondly is after gathering information, whether consciously or unconsciously we're doing it, we are evaluating the value of the person based on their answers. You may not realize you're doing that, but that's what you're doing. Every time they give you a piece of information, it's, hmm, where do you work? Actually, I'm unemployed. Hmm, that's what happens inside. So now where's the conversation going to go? Why are you unemployed? Now, you're not going to say, what? You're unemployed? You're going to do it in a nicer way. What happened? Oh, I got laid off. Oh, that's okay. How long have you been laid off? Well, a year and a half. This whole thing going on right now where you get more money to be unemployed than I would if I work? Hmm. Now You're not going to say that out loud, but that's going on inside. You're making those evaluations as you go on. Uh, I'm retired. Oh, okay. All right. I don't feel like working, slacker. <laughs> Again, you're not going to say that out loud, but that's what happens inside. You're making these evaluations. Of course, if they are working, what do you do? And what you're trying to find out in that moment of asking what a person does, and maybe you are so holy that this never happens with you. But what we're really doing is finding out how important they are by what they do. I'm vice president for blah, 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 blah. Oh, you're up there. Uh, I, I collect garbage. And then from there, your brain, consciously or unconsciously, is slotting them in as to whether or not there's somebody you really want to spend time with in the future. That's our nature. And and you're thinking about how valuable they are to you. Call me cynical. You won't be the first person. Call me, and I saw recently that cynicism is a sin. I don't agree with that. It's just being cynical. But I, I would say that these conversational exchanges... It can often seem more like an interview to determine whether or not I offer the other person any usefulness at all by the time you're done. It can be a pretty downright judgmental process, especially when it comes to pastors and their college affiliations. What if you graduated from Harvard? versus some little podunk school. You have your master's? Awesome. That's great. Where'd you get from? You You went to Denver Seminary. Now, you don't know about Denver Seminary, but I do. So somebody says they went to Denver Seminary and you're already slotting them theologically, all their beliefs, all their values, everything. They graduated from Wheaton. They have a doctorate from Wheaton Ooh, you're slotting them in. This is a smart person. This is an exceptional student. These, this one, there aren't very many PhDs from Wheaton relative to a lot of other places. It is the Harvard of Christian schools. So if a pastor says, hey, I got my PhD at Wheaton. Ooh, oh. Up here. You're up there. I graduated from Northland. Where? Ah, it's a small school up in northern Wisconsin. Oh, okay. In fact, it doesn't even exist anymore. Oh, loser. That's where you just got slotted, was loser. Say, why are you spending so much time on this? Because I think it really allows us to think about Abraham and his situation. What happened in his life? I was thinking about how Abraham would answer those questions. If you met Abraham in those days and he had just arrived in Canaan and you walked up and started those American cultural conversations with them, with him, how would he answer those questions? Where are you from? Uh, Where? Why here? Why, why, why did you move here? Hmm. Who's, who's your family? Well, never heard of them. So, as we, th- as we think about Abraham this morning, I want you to think in context of answering those questions and what that meant for Abraham in his time and what God was asking of Abraham. Or, not asking. God didn't ask, hey, Abraham, I got this great idea. Would you like to do this? What God commanded Abraham to do. Abraham was the son of Terah, most likely born in northern Mesopotamia. For a long time, they believed that Abraham was from southern Mesopotamia, from a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which um, nobody quite knows where Ur was and they assumed it was southern Mesopotamia and that it was a very influential cosmopolitan city. More recent study has brought most scholars to the conclusion that he was actually from northern Mesopotamia, not southern. He was from northern Mesopotamia, in an area better known today to us as either Syria or southwestern Turkey, that area of the, the map over there. We're told in Genesis 11 that his hometown was or of the Chaldees, but we don't know very much about what that was. Abraham was a descendant of Noah's son Shem, Ham, Shem and Japheth, and Shem was from the line of Seth so that genealogy from Adam through the godly line of Seth continues on down through Noah and then ultimately comes out to Abraham. We know he had two brothers, Nahor and Haran, and a nephew named Lot. Lot was the son of his brother Haran, who died at some point in time. He died in his father's presence, we're told. Abraham was also married to a woman named Sarai, but they had no children." Just think about how he would have answered those questions. That's who he was. And that last one, he was married to Sarai, but they had no children. Anyone who has not been able to have children will tell you that in our culture today, it's a pressure. Everybody wants to know the reason why, as if they have a right to know that. Everyone wants the person to tell them the sad story of why they don't have children. As if we're going to lament with them, but all we're doing is being nosy. women today get slotted down on that hierarchy of value they get slotted down because they haven't had children it's one step above we don't want children in our culture and, and, and it's, it's not like we want children but, but we haven't been able to have children it's oh well that's too bad and we pry and we probe. And it's none of our business. But you go back to that culture. And it was horrid to not have children. The, the, the ultimate value of a woman in that society was to bear children. And the ultimate dream of a man was to have a boy. There's still a lot of that going on today. So I, I, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just thought I'm going to say it. If we are judging women on the basis of whether or not they're able to have children, and we are coming to a conclusion that their womanhood is less because they don't have children, I'm just going to say flat out that is sinful ungodliness. And it's just as bad to slot women as less valuable because they're not married, and come to conclusions that there must be something wrong with them. That is just flat out wrong. Okay, so I got that off my chest this morning. But in their culture, a woman who couldn't bear children was seen of little value And a man who was not a father, but married, was seen as a failure. So it's important for Moses to put in there, for us to understand Abraham, that he was married to Sarai, but she was barren. Moses isn't being unkind in saying that. He wants you to understand their predicament and their situation. It wasn't just that they had not had children yet. Mo- Sarai Sarah was barren. It was the bottom line. One day we're told that Terah and his family moved to the land of Canaan. This is in Genesis 11. We're told by Stephen, who was one of the early followers of Christ, uh, early Christians, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death for preaching a message that the people around him didn't like. But we're told as part of that message, <clears throat> Stephen says that God had spoken to Abraham, telling him to leave his family and go to a land that he would show him. So what we find in Genesis 11 is that Abraham had partially obeyed. Abraham left his home, but he took his family. He took his father, and he took his nephew with him. And along the way, they came to a city named Haran, and for unknown reasons, they decided to settle down. It's at this point, with Abram living in Haran, that his father and his father now dead, that the storyline of Hebrews comes into play. So what I'd like for us to do is go to Genesis 12, Look at Genesis 12 and see how it connects us to Hebrews chapter 11. So Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> and probably this will be familiar to most of you this passage, but I want us to read verses one to nine of chapter 12, and that will give us the backstory to Hebrews 11:8. Verse one of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, or to the to the south, the southern region. What we find here in In Genesis chapter 12, is this man Abram, whose father has recently died, and he himself is now living very comfortably in Haran with his wife and nephew. He has prospered there. He's become very wealthy, and now it seems that he has a contingency of servants. But it would appear from verse 1 of chapter 12 that Abram knew he had not fulfilled. What God had told him to do. Notice in verse 1 it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham. As some translations have that as Abram, or, or the Lord had said to Abram, bringing up the, the idea that this had already been spoken to him, which is what Stephen seems to be telling us. He had been commanded by God to leave his homeland northern Mesopotamia to leave his family and to leave his father's household and go to a land that God would show him. And I want you to think about for just a moment what God was commanding him to do. And this is why I, I wanted to point out the the cultural things we do in meeting people. What God was wanting to Abram to do was to abandon the foundational aspects of his identity. Everything that gave Abram meaning as to who he was, his place in society, his value as a person was to be left behind. When we go through that ritual of asking each other those questions, we're doing an identity inquisition. We're asking the other person to establish their identity with us. And it's a mutual cooperative thing. For Abraham, and he's called Abram at this time, God was telling him to abandon his identity. He was to leave his homeland and to walk away from all that had shaped him culturally. Everything that influenced how he thought about his world and life, the things that anchor one's perspective of the world, was to be left behind. I don't know how many of you have traveled out of the country. The people we were sitting with last night at dinner had really not traveled overseas much at all. I've I've been all over the world. And some of you have been to various different places overseas. When you get into those cultures and you spend time in those cultures, you begin to realize how different you are and how different you think from them. And how you don't fit and you don't belong there. I remember the first time I traveled out of the country uh, overseas... Uh, was to go to Kiev, Ukraine. And after I came back, I was flying in through Chicago, and so that's where I went through customs. And, uh, and I showed them my passport and my little piece of paper that I'd filled out for them, and they asked me a couple questions, and my full name is Jonathan on my passport. And so when we gotten all done with that routine, the lady looked at me and she said, Welcome home, Jonathan. And and honestly, I almost started crying. Because I had felt so out of place for two weeks in Ukraine. And I was back to where I belonged. It wasn't a welling of patriotism in me. It was a welling of, this is where I belong. This is my place. Abraham... Was to walk away from that and now, in a sense, be a man without a country. He was to leave behind his family identity and go to a place where no one knew him or cared who he was. There are, I've moved a lot in my life, Um, poor Terry. I've dragged her all over the country um, in pursuit of what I believe God has for us, and she's agreed with those decisions. But, you know, you know me, some of you, for seven years, some of you for four years, some of you for two years, some of you for one year. Some of you know me better than some others know me. But there's really only one person who's walked through most of my life with me, and that's Terry. And she knows all the things that have happened. I have children that didn't experience all those things, but they know the stories of those things. Yesterday was our 39th anniversary, which is awesome. I'm, I can't believe it, and we're coming up on 40. We've begun 40 years together. Uh, it's just gone by so fast. But A lot of you think you know me, but I've felt sometimes in my pity party moments if they only knew who I used to be, which is really a sorry way of thinking. There's so much that you don't know of who I was and what I've done you know me as the pastor of Northbrook who used to teach at a college that you never heard of. I, I was somebody in this world. And now I'm not that somebody anymore in good and bad ways. But here's Abraham who's being moved from, he's already made the one move and the one adjustment but probably was still well known to certain degrees inherent now he's moving down into Canaan where absolutely no one knows who he was. And no one really cares. He's a man without a country. He's a man without a heritage. He's just Abraham with a bunch of people moving around through a part of the world. And what we don't think of in today's culture, but was so important in their time, was the family name. The heritage of that family name was crucial to one's place in society. Solomon says to his son that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And in their culture, that was massive, who your name was, what your heritage is, God commanded Abraham to leave his status as somebody behind and go where the name of Terah meant absolutely nothing. Abraham was also told to leave his father's house. In those days, this meant much more than moving out of the family home. When I moved from Denver to Northwoods of Wisconsin, that was a rending moment for me. I left my, my mom and my dad behind. I left that family unit behind. And I began to realize for the first time what it had been like for Terry when she married me and I tore her away from her family home to go live in Denver. Away from her family, which was a very tight family. I was moving away from a family that was very dysfunctional and not very tight. When I left for college my first time, my dad had to be away on a business trip my mom was sick and I drove myself to the airport and got on a plane and flew away. No hugs, no real I love yous. We didn't say that in our home. It was just, well, I'm leaving, okay, bye, do well, bye. So that was my family and it was just rending for me when we, when we moved to, to Wisconsin. It was all gone. But it was much more for Abraham than it is even in our society. He wasn't just moving out of the family house. This command meant that Abraham would be leaving the family business, his source of income, his financial security. It meant that he was giving up any land that belonged to the family. And the land was so important, not just for the Jews, but for people at all in those days. To have land meant you had potential for future, for income, for security. All of the future inheritance was tied to that family business and that family parcel of land. In essence, God was commanding Abraham to abandon his future security. He was to go to an unknown place where he didn't belong where he would be unknown and alone and with no visible means of supporting himself he was not only to go to a place that he had never seen but also had no idea where it was try explaining that to friends and family where are you going don't know How are you gonna know when you get there? Not sure. God told me to go. I'm going south. South and west. And God's gonna tell me when I get there. Now, if your kid came to you or your friend came to you and said, We're moving, I'm moving. Oh really? What's your plan? Southwest to where don't know but God told me uh, <laughs> what's really going on here tell me what's really going on what's the problem what do you want to talk about I'm just telling you God told me to go and I think it's Southwest and that's where I'm well, how are you going to support yourself don't know what about your wife she's going too. What are you going to do when you get there? Don't know. Are you getting the picture of Abraham's story? God was calling Abraham to abandon his identity and place in this world. But Genesis also tells us of God's promises. God promised to show Abraham where he was to go. I'll show you where you're going as you go. Trust me. Believe me. God promised to create a great nation from Abraham's descendants, implying that Abraham would have children. That's what Genesis 12 tells us. I will make of you a great nation. And I got to think in Abraham's mind... That the first thought would have been I don't have kids. How can my descendants be a great nation if Sarai's barren? Hmm. God promised that he would bless Abraham and make his name great a legacy. His name would not only be great, his name would be a blessing. To all peoples. Finally, God promised to protect Abraham for the rest of his life. God was not calling Abraham to just be a man without a country, a heritage, and a legacy, and a man without hope. He was calling him to abandon all of those things that are rooted in himself and his environment And understand that his legacy and his country and his heritage and his hope would all be founded in God. God was commanding Abraham to let go of everything earthly that formed his identity and embrace everything spiritually. Everything from God that would give him a whole new identity. That was the choice that was before him. God was leading Abraham to a greater land, a better heritage, the greatest legacy, and the ultimate hope one could ever hold on to. And Abraham was faced with a choice to believe in the person and promises of God and dependently follow him into the unknown. or to not believe and seek identity in the temporal things of this life. And Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, which is belief, Abraham went out dependent upon God. Abraham's choices remind me of Jesus's choices. Again, Abraham is not in the Bible for us to say, I'm going to be Abraham. Because there's a lot of things about Abraham that were not good. Abraham is in the story of the Bible to point us to Jesus. Jesus also went out from his father's home to a land where he didn't belong. He came into the creation that he had made and he was a misfit there. He was born in relative poverty. His entire life he was seen as an illegitimate child. We, we don't even understand that anymore. We have so many children that are being produced out of wedlock today. And that's not to devalue them. It's just to say it's become the norm. Now we hook up, have children, live together raise them until they're about 8 or 10 years old, and then we should get married. Right? We should do that. Why? I, I'm just like, why do you want to get married? Well, stability for the kids. Okay. Well, a wonderful reason. We, we don't think poorly of illegitimate kids anymore. But in their time... That was massive. And when I was a kid, that was massive. Everybody whispered about those kids. But Jesus was seen for his entire life as an illegitimate child. It got thrown up in his face often that you're not qualified to talk to us about anything regarding righteousness because you're a product of unrighteousness. Therefore, you have no value. Jesus spent his life largely as a misfit in his surrounding culture. The one who had created all that exists was rejected by his brothers and sisters. He had no permanent dwelling place. And as Isaiah tells us, he was despised as a man on this earth. He came as a servant, taking on human flesh to give himself in sacrifice to bring forgiveness of sin to all who trust in him. Why did he do this? Because it was his Father's will. Jesus gave up his identity in essence to take on human flesh and live in weakness. He is the all-powerful creator and he put himself in human flesh as the weak one. It was his father's will that through his death, sinners could know life. So Jesus wanted to do his father's will. He gave up his identity so you and I could become children of God. The only begotten son of God came to earth to be known as the son of Joseph and Mary, an illegitimate child in his culture. A poor man, who is despised and rejected of men, so that we, through belief in his death, burial, and resurrection, could become the sons and daughters of God, exalted to reign with Jesus forever and be united with him as his brothers and sisters. He gave up his Home in heaven to go to another country so that we could become citizens of a righteous kingdom. He gave up his glory so that we could share in his glory. He took our sin upon himself so that we could, through faith in him, share in his righteousness. He left his place in heaven to live and die on this earth knowing that afterwards his name would be above every name and his throne above every throne. He is the ultimate example of what it means to leave everything behind to follow the will of God and be utterly dependent upon his Father. He is the ultimate example Example of the one who believed in the promises of God. He believed his father's promises. He focused on the fulfillment of those promises and he entrusted himself, Peter tells us, to the one who judges justly. And God calls us to do the same. He calls us as sinful humans. Whom Jesus referred to as children of the devil, to leave that identity behind. And by faith in Jesus' sacrifice, become children of God. God calls us to not trust in money, to not trust in financial security, but trust in His promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. You know, when we're flush with money and everything's good, it's easy to believe that God will never leave us or forsake us but if we lose it all one of the th- first things out of our mouth if not in our mind is why God why why where are you? And he says I will never leave you or forsake you do you believe that? He calls us to follow Him, to obey Him, regardless of the financial repercussions. I'll tell you, one of the hardest things for me about following God's will for my life in relation to overall ministry pursuit has been the financial side of it. When we sat down to talk with one of the pastors at our church we were a part of in Denver and I told him that I believed God might be leading me into some kind of full-time ministry but I wasn't sure I was qualified. My question of qualification was the life I had lived previously and I felt like I was disqualified. He surprised me by saying I don't think any of those things disqualify you. But I will tell you that you are greedy. I didn't see myself that way. But he recognized it. And he said, On this list, you can't be greedy for money. That has to change, or you will never make it in ministry. And I'll tell you, probably the greatest struggle I've had since making that decision has been the issue of money. We were talking yesterday, Terry and I, and Alyssa were talking. I've never been paid what I'm worth and I'm not, that is that is nothing, I don't want you to walk away and go pastor feels like we're not taking care of him or not taking care of him well enough you take very well care very good care of us and I'm not complaining about what I get paid I'm, I'm content I think I'm content as much as I know myself But there are those moments when it's just like my experience, my skills, I'm worth far more than what I'm getting paid. You say, well, I feel that way too. Great. See, we all all live in that same boat. At Northland, we lived below the poverty line every year we were there. I never felt poor. It wasn't until we were away from Northland, and one of our daughters said, we were poor. And I was just like, no, we weren't. And she said, we live below the poverty line, Dad. Well, again, I guess that's true. We were poor. But there have been those moments where it's just like, if I was doing that, I'd have that money, and I'd have everything that goes with that money. I'm not a pastor because I can't do anything else. I'm a pastor because I can't not do this. But God called me a long time ago away from money and success and future. And said, I want you to go do this. And it was, but I have this house and I have this car picked out and I have these things ready to go. I can't live without those things. And when he said that to me, that you're greedy, I said to God, if you want me to pursue this path, you have to deal with this. Because I can't let go on my own. You've got to actually take it away from me. And that's a whole other story, and that's what he did. He took away the desire for those things at that time. A lot of us are not called to leave it all behind. We're called to let go of some of it. And that's hard to do. For some, it's hard to let go just to be putting money in offering. Isn't it? It's hard to trust that God's going to take care of us if we let go of it into His service. It's hard to believe that He's going to be faithful to us. Beyond that, He calls us not to look for our security and our accomplishments or our family name or our reputation, but to find the greatest satisfaction in being known as His children. In those moments where I think, if they only knew who I was, I got to remind myself of this is who you are, and God knows you, and He still calls you as His child. He calls us to live counterculturally, not to prove that we're weird not to prove that we're godly because we're the weirdest people on the block. He calls us to live counter-culturally, to be people who reject the cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and the boasting in who we are and what we have. Instead of wondering where we are on the pecking list of usefulness and success, he calls us instead to be dependent upon on the power of the Holy Spirit, and to grow in the things that are of most value to God and to our culture: love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, faithfulness, goodness and self-control the things that our society does not value. In a world of hatred and divisive tribalism, we are to be people who love our enemies and are known as Jesus followers because we love each other. You know what grieves me the most right now in my time of life is what's going on in our culture, but more importantly, what's going on with Christians. People who are to be known by their love are screaming their heads off on Facebook and other people. Are being obnoxious about the loss of comforts and guaranteed rights and are not talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. They're fighting over the things that are going to burn and go away. There are days when I am so sick of it, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. Honestly. And it's not a condemnation of Northbrook Baptist Church. It's just like, is there any point to this when this is where Christians are going? It grieves my heart. because we, we have made all the things that are going to burn the most important things in our lives, and we're giving ourselves to those and being most vocal about those things. What we learn from Abraham, and more importantly from Jesus, is that God calls sinful human beings to believe in Jesus' sacrifice and thereby forsake their natural identities for a new identity. God calls us to identify with him and his values in a world that rejects him. And that is not going to work out for our advantage. You've got to understand that up front. It's not going to work for our advantage in relation to what the world offers us. It will work to our advantage in relation to what is best for us. God calls us to become like Jesus in a culture which believes Christ's likeness is dangerous to society. But that doesn't mean our focus is changing society so that they see us as valuable. It means we live being perceived as dangerous. He calls us to lovingly walk in this world, befriending and caring for those who are his enemies, living for his glory and the good of others. This requires faith in the person and promises of God. It is the only way it's going to happen in your life. Is if you believe, if by faith you choose to live. Let me say this, if this morning as God's child you are wrestling with all this means for you, if you are uncomfortable with your place in the world, and I am uncomfortable with my place in the world, I'm glad I'm 60. I'm not gonna be here that much longer. 20 years, I'll be 80. If I make it that far, 20 years goes by like that. I feel bad for the you people who are young. If you feel uncomfortable with your place in this world, ask God to cause you to believe that he is for you, that he is with you, and to believe that he will bring you to enjoy all that he has promised. It is the only way that you're going to be able to obey God and be the kind of person that he desires you to be in this world. Abraham was called to be completely dependent upon God. And that's the best place that we can be. It is a good God who says, me, focus on me, be dependent upon me. Not because he's selfish, not because he's egotistical, but because of all he can offer us and all that He is. When we choose that way, we are living in the way that is best in this world and the next. Let's pray. Father, I pray. Again, as I so often do, that You would teach us from Your Word. Help us to understand what it means to be like Jesus help us to not be people who just speak that we want to be like Jesus but do something deep inside of us to cause us to want truly want that to truly understand the cost and to be faithful in our hearts so that we are faithful in our lives. Lord, we're living in crazy and godless times. And the culture is spinning apart around us. Help us not to cling to pieces of paper written long ago that guarantee us certain things. Help us to claim, cling to Jesus in faith, trusting in what he has accomplished. Help us to understand that your word is permanent. It is our only hope for understanding who you are and what you desire. Help us to understand that what will change this culture does not come through earthly institutions or earthly agendas, but it comes through the new birth that is a result of believing the message of the gospel. Father, help us to advance the kingdom of Jesus through the spread of the gospel and the discipling of believers. Most of all, help us to be dependent upon you. And I ask these things in your name. Amen.